Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay. So we're very pleased to talk with um, Jessica Leahy, the author of The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And um, a writer for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, New York Times, a bunch of other uh, publications. And so I'm so thankful she took some time to spend some time on our podcast. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. So um, I th- before we started, I told you, you know, I'm a father of six kids. Uh, I'm one of 10 kids. Wow. And so I really am looking for information here for myself. <laughs> I'm selfish here. So um, I'm really excited for this interview. And, um, but I, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, in these crazy times that we're in right now, these are, these are really heavy, important issues that we're, yeah. we're looking about, you know, just, we're, so we're, we're right, right now we're on the weekend of, you know, state, you know, cities throughout the country had riots and all sorts of things going on. We're on a, it's a Monday morning. It's June 1st. So here we are starting June and I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm trying mm-hmm. to be positive. And that's what who we interview. We interview people that have solutions rather than just, you know, basically uh, screaming at the night. So thanks so much for coming on. Um, first of all, Jessica, tell me a little bit about your background. Where are you mm-hmm. from? And how did, how did you get to where you are now? So I grew up outside of Boston, went to University of Massachusetts, which um, was my state school, my, uh, my, my uh, backup school. And I had sort of decided to go somewhere else. And my, my dad one day said, you know, it is a gorgeous day for a drive. Let's just, let's just go check it out. You have, didn't even go visit. It was, your, it was your safety school. Let's just go visit. Fell completely in love, ended up going there. I had a fantastic fantastic education at University of Massachusetts, Um, went out and worked for a while and then found myself in a situation where I was working with the Duke Child Protection Team. Um, They assess kids for um, evidence of physical and sexual abuse for, um, for prosecution, for custody, for all kinds of things. And just was enthralled with this one prosecutor who came in from Durham County District Court. Her name was uh, Marsha Mori. And I just met her and could not believe how cool her job was. And so I had also worked um, in pediatric neurology. I'd done a little bit of, I ended up doing some work with um, pediatric HIV research at Duke University. And um, I just I started shadowing Marsha Mori at juvenile court and just fell in love with it. And so decided to go to law school 
and applied to the two law schools on my back doorstep. My husband was at Duke Med School, so that was Duke and University of North Carolina. And one look at the price tags um, for the two, especially <laughs> since I was in state, was a really made it a really easy choice. And UNC um, just stole my heart. Also, I just loved learning there. It was a fantastic experience for me. I was a little bit older than my classmates and and um, married at that point. And I think being in that, having that perspective on the experience of law school, I think is really valuable. Um, you know, I had other things going on than just law school. And that was really, I think, really good for me. I was also spending as much time in juvenile court as I could. And then, I mean, I knew that's what I was going to do with my life. And then right at, during my second summer of law school, I decided to teach a class on law in a democratic society at the Duke Talent Identification Program. And I make this joke all the time, but it's 100% true. I came home after that first day of teaching and Tim, my husband, took one look at me and he said, are you even going to finish law school? It was like I was lit up from inside. And um, I was pregnant with my first kid, who's now in college um, at the time. And it, that's what happened. I, I finished law school, but I went straight into teaching, never looked back. Um, I thought I'd be working in, in juvenile court, but uh, the teaching, that, that was just it. And after I finished, I started teaching. I, I have taught all sorts of places. I've taught at public, private, sort of hoity-toity and less hoity-toity and the past, uh, mostly middle school and high school and wrote Gift of Failure while I was teaching um, middle school. And so the heart of that book really is in middle school. But I spent the last six years of my teaching career teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol unit um, for adolescents. So I had gone to that rehab to speak as I'm in recovery myself. Um, in fact, next week I'll have seven years of sobriety. Congratulations. And I went there to speak. Thank you. And I went there to talk to the kids and I just sort of looked around for a second and I said, wait a minute. If they're here 24 seven, someone has to be their teacher. They can't just be here and not be doing school. And it turns out the state of Vermont sort of oversees the education program that runs at the rehab. And so um, the kids who are in rehab there also have to go to school for a couple of hours a day. And I was their English and writing teacher. And I did that for six years. And it was probably the most fulfilling teaching, one of the most fulfilling teaching experiences I've ever had. So that led to um, my next book, which will be out next uh, April, called The Addiction Inoculation. And that is about preventing substance abuse in kids. So it's wow. been- Wow, there we go. I, they, you know, cool, I knew this was going to be a good interview. <laughs> it's been a pretty cool ride, mainly because I've gotten to do so many cool things. Um, you know, I've worked all over the place. Right out of college, I worked at a mutual fund company, and that was valuable for various reasons. Sure. I've been a speechwriter for a U.S. governor. That was obviously valuable for many reasons. Um, but the confluence of writing and teaching just was such a surprise to me. Um, I you know, I had, have always been a writer and had written a book that didn't sell. And I was kind of devastated. And I was like, you know, look, I don't know what to write about now. And my husband said, you know, when you really light up is when you write about teaching and that's when your voice is its strongest. And so maybe you should do that. And I said, well, no one wants, no one wants to hear about, no one wants to read about education. And uh, I've been very happy to be wrong about that. I started writing for, um, 
I wrote my own blog about teaching and then that got picked up another place. And then I just started gaining readers. The next thing I knew after submitting a lot, I was writing for the Atlantic and had a column at the New York Times for three years called the Parent Teacher Conference and have just had the most delightful writing career because I get to find things I'm interested in and research and write about them. I mean, it's, it's the best job ever. All right. So I like that uh, background. So give me, let's back up here. You're growing up in sure. outside of Boston or inside Boston? Outside of Boston, just about uh, sort of Metro West Boston, about 20 miles outside Boston. And then how many kids in your family when you were growing up? Two. I have a little sister. My mom and dad are actually um, here with me uh, doing a sort of socially distanced uh, visit. They have masks on inside the house and we're trying to spend as much time outside the house as possible. Yeah. And um, my husband, by the way, is an infectious disease doctor. He wow. he's, um, so he's head of medical ethics and an infectious disease physician um, and vaccine researcher at University of Vermont. So he's sort of off busy doing COVID stuff right now. Wow, so I, I tell you, it's, it's, it's really yeah, you got an interesting life. Uh, so you're, you're growing <laughs> up, tell me a little bit about um, your first job. Oh, my up. first job? My very first job growing up, I lived down the street from a place called White Oaks Farm. And it was a company uh, in a house. It was these people's home. And they had a commercial bakery in their home. And they made these really special macaroons, not coconut macaroons, but these really special almond uh, cookies Ooh. called St. Emilion macaroons. And it was a recipe that I've never seen. No one was allowed to see the recipe from these nuns in the St. Emilion region, uh, I guess, of France. And uh, my job was to um, take the cookies off of the paper that they bake them on by painting the back of the paper with, wet, with a wet paintbrush, peeling the paper off, and then packaging them for sale locally and for shipping. And so I did that um, from, I think I was in like sixth grade when I started that. And then I moved up to the big leagues, which was um, working at the apple orchard up the street from my house, Douse's Apple Orchard in Sherburne, Massachusetts. And uh, yeah, and went from there. I've done a little bit of everything. Worked in an outdoor store, worked in a bike shop, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Your usual so you, like teen, you know, yeah. jobs. Well, that, so th how important is that, you think, for kids to enter into that type of outdoor, you know, outside of the family relationship yeah. early? How important is that uh, for kids? I think it's invaluable. The problem is these days, um, it's incredibly difficult well, number one, it's become um, it's become more difficult for kids to get jobs from uh, liability, you know, that sort of side of it. But kids are so scheduled with sports and other activities after school and homework and stuff like that. It can be really difficult to find the time to get a job, um, but it's it's invaluable. I mean, from my perspective, uh, my kids, the jobs that they have had have shaped them as people. Um, one of my favorite. So my older son, who's now in college, he's a junior in college, and he um, worked as a, he went to camp in the summer, and then he started working as like an, a, you know, an aide, and then a, a counselor, and all that sort of stuff. And I love the fact that his badge um, at camp, Ben, what did your badge say? What was your job title? His job title was professional role model. And oh, that I like alone, that. I know, he worked at Coniston, which is in um, New Hampshire. And that, that alone right there was an incredible experience for him. 
And the things he had to do in order to maintain that job and um, get qualified, he ended up teaching archery and riflery. Um, he made a mistake around his archery, scheduling his archery class and missed the first day accidentally. He got the scheduling wrong, but there were only so many places where that was happening. And so he was in big trouble. If he couldn't take that class, he couldn't have his summer job. And so he didn't tell me at the time that he screwed it up because he wanted to figure out how to fix it himself. And he ended up driving to Maine to like where the instructor would be teaching next and fi fixing it himself. And what was cool about that is when he came to me with the problem already solved, he was really proud of himself for that. And that was really cool. My younger kid works as a junior librarian at our local library. So he's you know, for him, it's been really great because he's had to learn how to interact with patrons of the library. He's had to learn, you know, all the usual stuff you'd have to learn at a library, but it's also just been good for him in terms of human interaction and talking with other people and figuring out, you know, how to just how to talk with other adults. I think that's the thing that often gets lost. Um, you know, the value of, you know, working at a cash register and having to learn how to talk to people who are mad for a certain reason or um, need help with things, um, how to problem solve. I remember when I worked at a bike store, um, a, a, a person came in, a customer came in who was deaf and my sign language was pretty rough. Um, I could fingerspell and that was about it, but we worked it out. You know, we yeah. wrote notes, we, I fingerspelled some things and that's really valuable. So no, I, I, I agree. You know, yeah. My, my first job. So I grew up in a small town called Yakima, Washington. I don't know if you've heard of Yakima, yeah, Washington. Yep, absolutely do. Agricultural area. So there was apple orchards like you had, but we grow the most hops in the world, which is, you know, good or bad. And then a uh, bunch of produce, et cetera. But my job mm -hmm. was to be the paper boy. And so I had, when I was in eighth grade, freshman year, I think I had it for two years. I had 150 papers, had to get up at five in the morning. Yeah. I had to do yeah. that. And then I, the, the big thing was, what you just talked about, was I had to go door to door every month, every month to collect the money. And so you find out yeah. who pays their bills, who doesn't. Yeah. Who is, who is, who likes, you know, who will avoid you, all these things. Right. And all these things that, that are kind of second nature to a lot of people that, that are around adults all the time. And then, mm -hmm. then nowadays there is no such thing as a paper up because yeah. number one, a lot of people don't read the paper anymore. They just write it online, but, mm -hmm. but it's like somebody's, you know, an adult's job that uses a car and, um, and, and does it. But um, I'm trying to figure out, Jessica, if there's a way, like for example, in Chicago, um, mm -hmm. uh, I want I want kids to have the same experience I had um, mm -hmm. with that type of job, and um, mm -hmm. you know, in every neighborhood in Chicago, not just the suburbs where you know we are. Every single one that they can have a job where they have to have that type of interaction, because I think one of the main things in our society is is that is that you got to have a participation level and an ownership mm -hmm. and a hope in your future those three things mm -hmm. are very important and you know how i mean give me some ideas um you know mm -hmm. i know that you're seeing kids kind of not um in the middle of their journey kind of the beginning of their journey but they got there mm -hmm. for a reason Give me mm -hmm. some ideas that we could 
we could have where the Jessica uh, Leahy's and the Joe <laughs> Shannon's of the world, you know, that our type of upbringing could be, um, you know, in the inner city of Chicago or Boston or these types of places. Mm -hmm. I, and by the way, I read Common Ground. Did you read Common Ground about Boston? Um, that's a great book. It's about the busing mm -hmm. in Boston. It's a really good book called Common. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that I do know that book. I haven't read it. It's one of the best books I've ever read. I've never, you know, I've yeah. been in Boston a few times, but I've never really been to the neighborhoods, but really good, you know, history of the book, of this thing. But mm -hmm. give me some ideas about maybe how we can work on the beginning part. And so we're, mm -hmm. we don't have these, you know, as many problems as we do now. Yeah. Well, there, uh, one thing I want to bring up just as a preface to that discussion is that there is very specifically research about the value of kids being able to contribute to the family, whether that's in a financial, from a financial perspective or from a labor perspective, that kids and their, uh, the research, the, the research I'm thinking of right now, um, one of the studies actually took place in retrospect after the, during the, and after the Great Depression, where it, they looked at kids who were able to go out and add, you know, make a few pennies here and there um, and able to contribute to the family even if it's just in a very nominal way, those kids suffer fewer emotional, sort of less emotional um, problems after the fact from you know difficult things their families go through because there's that feeling of an added level of control and, and contribution. Um, much of what we as human beings there's this experience called uh, learned helplessness, where when we feel like we don't have much control and the things that we are going to try to do to change the world, which is a really apt conversation right now, that if we feel like we have no ability to change our environment and we, in response to long-term suffering, frustration, stress, our default is to curl up in a ball and go helpless. That is the way humans are built. But the way we counteract that is by giving back more control. This is uh, research that came out of, uh, that Martin Seligman, sort of the father of positive psychology at University of Pennsylvania, he did a big meta study on the, the, the research around learned helplessness and found that the way to circumvent, the way to short circuit our natural response to feeling um, overwhelmed, that learned helplessness response is to give control back. So when you have a kid who just sort of goes boneless and is like, oh, I can't do it. I'll never be able to do it. I don't know, I don't know how to do it. That giving control back is sort of the antidote to that. And it's also the antidote to this um, feeling of not having any efficacy in the world. And self-efficacy is one of the most important building blocks for a competence and mental health and feeling like you are um, valued and valuable and efficacious in this world. And so one of the things we're seeing right now is that many people are seeing, okay, we can protest all we want and uh, police behavior or um, the way that African-Americans are treated in this country is not changing. So no matter what I do, I can't make things change. That's, that means that you then have this low level of self-efficacy and that's really damaging to people over the long term. Whereas, you know, if you're in a position of privilege and you want to change how something um, works in the world, we can go out and change things. So I think the problem is, is that when you're talking about, you know, people 
like you or me going out into the world and having a job, there's a difference between you in Chicago going door to door and asking for money and a black kid going door to door and asking for money. The way that, that the two of you are going to be treated is very different. And so I think recognizing that and understanding that and is going to be one of the first things we're going to have to do in order to talk about this. But you know, there are lots of things to talk about in terms of how we give people that sort of experience and renormalizing the uh, kids having jobs, kids having, um, and it's difficult because the rules, uh, it was funny when my younger kid was trying to get a job and he wasn't yet 16, he went to go get a job at our local hardware store. The rules, even when you're under 18, the rules about what he was allowed to do were so bonkers because they were guided by, you know, rules around child labor and, and rules around uh, liability. So like he wasn't allowed to quote, run machinery. If you're younger than I think 18 in Vermont, you're not allowed to run machinery. And that, that can include a vacuum cleaner. And they were just laughing about it at the hardware store. They're like, we would love to hire you, but we can't hire you in a capacity that makes any sense for us to hire you because you right. can't even run the vacuum cleaner. Whereas right. when I was working, um, in probably non-OSHA approved, you know, sure. shed with no, um, you know, freezing to death in the winter selling apples and, you know, helping run the cider press, which by the way, was probably ridiculously yeah. dangerous. You know, there are a lot of reasons. And what's fun about, you know, looking at this kind of research um, and as it applies to education, like what we can get away with in education in terms of like taking away rules and letting kids get more physical and letting kids sort of have more person-to-person -person contact. A lot of the best research comes out of Australia and New Zealand where it you can't sue schools. They are sort of blanket uh, liability protection against schools. But in the US, you know, there's, if we let kids jostle about in, in recess, we can sue the schools if our kid breaks their arm, that kind of thing. So right. the problem is, I think we're in a terrible situation where between, you know, the liability and um, the fact that kids, there, it just isn't a lot of work that younger kids can do. Um, I've seen some kids do some really cool, ingenious, creating their own job situation. Um, right. A friend, a kid that lives uh, here in Vermont, a kid of a friend of mine, they have a bunch of, they have a, um, some maple trees on their property. So he started tapping their maple trees and he found a way to carbonate it and he sells it at the local farmer's market. Um, he also bought a, uh, um, a sh uh, what's it called, a cotton candy maker so that he can make it out of the maple products that he was boiling down himself. Wow. Um, you know, you could, kids can do things like, uh, you know, get some rudimentary products. I was, we were watching YouTube and there was this guy who details cars and we were noticing that most of the equipment that he uses actually is pretty affordable. So it would, you know, a kid could go ahead and decide that they were going to, you know, set up their, uh, put out their shingle as a car detailer in a small town. Like, you know, like the one I live in now, cars get filthy because most of our roads are dirt. So, you know, what if you set up, you know, hung up your shingle as a car detailer? I think there are ways to make it happen, but then we also run up against the um, overscheduled kids situation yeah. where yeah, that's a suburb, that's a huge suburban thing. Is that is the right? Yeah, I, I've lived that. Trust me, I've lived it. Um, been there, done that. Right. Um, you know that. You know the travel sports and you know, right. all the time. And you know, I, I the expectation I, I, is that kids are 
academics, they have to be athletic, they have to do athletics, they have to play an instrument, then they have to go home and do homework. And, you know, all of that, you know, parents ask me all the time, you're telling me my kid needs to be off of all digital devices X number of hours before they go to sleep um, because it's bad for their sleep. But how are we supposed to do that? And I say, you know, in return, I say, well, we got to take up a little ownership of that ourselves as parents. If our kids are out every night until eight with all their lessons and they're traveling this, that, and the other thing, and they can't possibly get started till eight or nine, um, then that's our responsibility as parents. And that's why I love of, you know, my editor at the New York Times, KJ Delantonia, she wrote a piece called I Refuse to Be Busy about just not scheduling things um, for her kids. I have, I happen to have a kid who's incredibly self-directed with the things that he, uh, both kids actually, that when they latch onto something they love, they do it on their own and, um, and they're not big joiners. So I don't, schedule a lot of stuff for my kids. And so my kid can get a job after school being a junior librarian, but you know, yeah, a you lot know, of parents are worried what that's going to look like on their college. Oh, they have to have all these activities. Otherwise they're just not going to get into college. You know, the, you know, the, the, uh, the craziness of, um, so I'll give you a, a, an anecdote here, uh, Jessica, and, and it really hit home with me. So our air conditioning went out on uh, uh, last Monday, it was a holiday, and it was 90 some degrees in Chicago, it was crazy. And, and so my mm-hmm. wife's like, figure this out, you know, you know and so I'm like <laughs> trying to figure out fuses and all, and I'm calling people, everybody's <laughs> like, anyway, so I finally called six different HVAC guys, and, and I finally got one that says, listen, I can come, uh, we'll send somebody out there, but you know, it's going to cost you. Blah, blah. I said, I don't care what, just send somebody. Okay. My wife's not happy. We were, you know, and, and the kids, you know, whatever. So, um, the guy comes out and the next day and it's like Elvis has entered the building because it was so hot <laughs> in our house. And, and, yeah. and so he, so he ends up, this guy's like 46 years old. He comes in and I follow him around and then just watching him, you know, and, and he does this thing for a couple hours he was uh, had a, a white collar training, but then when he was in his early 40s, decided that he was his job was being eliminated or whatever. So he went back to HVAC mm-hmm. school, got a trade, and now he's making more money than he ever did. Okay? Yeah, and he's got more control. People love him. You know, they see mm-hmm. him coming like Elvis or whatever. And so he he got a lot of job satisfaction of it. It seems to me that our country has become so enamored in the college white collar type thing that we forgot our roots of that we create things, we fix things, we invent things. And those people in my book are much more valuable in Vermont, in Illinois, in Boston. And so how do we, and and I think one of the things I'm thinking about is that could be a great thing for a lot of our larger urban areas is to get kids into that type of thing at an earlier age, both Mm -hmm. all types of kids. I don't care what color they are, what culture they are. Mm -hmm. The ability to fix things gives you empowerment, gives you dignity, gives you something that is good. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there, that is a multi-layered discussion, mainly because, um, 
you have to look at the history of trade schools in this country. So trade schools right now are seeing a real renaissance. And there's an incredible documentary by American Radio Works called Ready to Work, Reviving Vocational Education. Highly recommend it. Love that. It's a radio documentary. Um, Say it one more time own, yes, yes, so people can get it. It's called, uh, it's American Radio Works. And the, the, it's called Ready to Work. Okay. Reviving Vocational Education. And it's a multi-part series and most of it actually is centered on a minute van vocation minuteman vocational school which is right near where i grew up in massachusetts but it's a really lovely documentary by american radio works i just loved it um and you know over the years i've interviewed people like adam um adam savage of mythbusters who's a huge advocate for tr for trade work uh, for trade schools and the renaissance of trade schools um, my own son, so where we lived in New Hampshire before we moved here to Vermont, we did not have a high school in our town. So our town's property taxes paid for the kids to go to one of a couple different high schools. And my older son ch chose um, St. Johnsbury Academy um, in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. And St. Johnsbury Academy is unique in that um, the founders of St. Johnsbury Academy decided that or thought it was really important to have a trade program that was of equal um, stature as their academic programs. So St. J has um, an amazing plumbing, electrical, um, you know, robotics before robotics was a trendy thing to have. You know, they have these incredible trade programs and it's not that unusual for the kids who are on the serious academic track to also take trade programs as well. Um, and it's my, my older son took um, culinary and then they run, uh, there's a restaurant in town that's run by the school. But what you have to understand about trade schools is that their history is really interesting in that trade schools were originally created for to solve the immigrant problem and i'm putting air quotes up that yeah. for a certain period of time um you know there were a lot of people coming into this country at the turn of the century that we that they we as a country weren't sure what to do with in terms of schooling and so trade programs were seen as a convenient way to shuttle the, to sort of shunt those people off into trade programs it's actually um the tradition still lives on i was in um not as much here in the u.s but i was in northern ireland a couple of years ago because they were uh out they were rolling out minecraft in the um in the schools in northern ireland as an educational tool and in Northern Ireland, at the age of 12, you take a test and they decide whether you are academically oriented or trade oriented. And right. then those 12 year olds get to be like 17 and you wonder why they're not motivated to do school. Well, it's because at 12, you were told that you're basically too dumb for school. So, yep. you know, there, there are... I'm a huge fan of trade schools. I'm a huge fan of, of, you know, I told my own kids, I said, if you really want to make some good summer money, get, you know, go learn welding. Um, but we also have to understand that there is a context behind trade schools that is a little bit loaded. But on the other hand, like I said, I'm a huge fan. I think it would, it's really important for kids to know how to fix things. And I'm a pest when people come in my house and fix things because I don't want to just let them do it. I want them to show me how to do it. And not everybody's right. excited about that. But no. it's, you know, it's, I don't want to have kids who don't know how to fix things. That's it. That would be a huge disservice to them. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, this whole thing with, uh, you know, letting kids fail, that's, you know, the thing that you, you write about, I haven't read your book yet. I'm going to read it. I, I, um, I'm sorry I haven't <laughs> read the book yet, but, um, cause I want to be, 
um, you know, my, my oldest is 25 and my youngest is 11. So this is going to be for the mm -hmm. 11 and the 15 year old. So, um, I'll, I'll oh, I have a, a book things. for you uh, for them. Oh so yeah. What do you got? Book that just, just came out last week. So okay. gift of failure will give you, you know, in gift of failure, there's lists of what kids can do at various ages, both from a dexterity perspective and as a, you know, cognitive perspective, blah, blah, blah. So lots of suggestions and stuff like that. But this book came out last, just last week. Catherine Newman wrote this book, How to Be a Person. Okay. And in this book, this is for your younger kid. So in okay. this book, there are, it's 65 different skills that your kid's going to need to know, like how to cook stuff, how to oh, clean good. a toilet, how to deal with halfway dirty clothing, like clothes that don't necessarily need to go in the laundry, how to spend your money, um, how to load a dishwasher, uh, how to write a thank you note. And I it's like really that. oriented towards younger kids, showing them very specifically how to do these things. And the nice thing is like, here's how to set the table if the Queen of England is coming or if this is just for a regular <laughs> family night. But the nice thing is you can avoid you can t obviously teaching your kids how to do this stuff yourself takes a certain amount of patience. But what's really nice is when you have something to point to that says, here, sweetie, I'm cooking right now, but why don't you figure this out on your own? Or um, one of the things I did, um, there's a post on my at jessicalahey.com and it's called special care instructions. And there was a point at which my younger kids sort of said, um, it wasn't entirely true, that he didn't know how to do laundry, like I'd never taught him how to do it. And so I had heard from a friend that you can use dry erase markers to, to write on the outside of your washer and dryer, especially if it's enameled. <laughs> so my washer and dryer had in every instruction you could ever want written all over the outside yeah. of the machine with like arrows pointing for to things like, and, and big warnings, like stop. Are your underwear balled up inside of your jeans still? Do not press start <laughs> until you undo that. Or are your socks still balled up? Or did you step in dog poop with that sock and you need to yeah. use that spray cleaner over there before you right. do it? So there are ways to make this stuff fun and help kids be more competent and capable of fixing things and doing things around the house to do what I was talking about before, which is be of more utility in the home. And you know, paying kids for chores is one of the most important things that we need to stop doing. Paying kids for chores, and stop using the word chores, household duties is the correct term, at least in our house. Because chores, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to do something called a chore. It just sounds terrible. But <laughs> the reason that we do things around the house is not because we're going to get paid for them, but because it's what we do as part of a family to keep the family going. And especially right now, when there are maybe more people in the house, I don't know about you, but we're doing more laundry and running the dishwasher yeah. more than we ever have before. And it's a real opportunity to say, I, I can't be the only person doing this, or my husband yeah. and I can't be the only people doing this. We all have to pitch in together because this is a time when we really need each other. And that's what gives kids a feeling of, oh, I am a part of this family, not just in name, but in actual purpose. And that's Ooh. great for kids. What's the name of that author that had to be a person book? We're going to give him or her props. Catherine Catherine Newman, she's a lovely writer. She writes an advice column for Real Simple. Um, she's just, she's wonderful. Where's she uh, out of? How to be a, 
She's out of um, Amherst, Massachusetts, actually. She uh, teaches, she's been a, a teacher there for a long time in the creative writing program at, at university, or sorry, at Amherst College. She, uh, she writes for Real Simple. She's written a bunch of other books that are just wonderful. She's That's great. good. So, yeah, you know, I'm thrilled um, about this book. Good. So one of the things that I always like to ask folks is, I know that you mentioned that, uh, that uh, prosecuting attorney or state's attorney that you, that you, instantly kind of so she's she, now a judge actually she's, oh, she's she? judge maury now yes okay I so, keep judge in touch maury. With her. so um you know all of us have people that i think show us that mm -hmm. we can make a difference in not yeah. just one person's life but many people's yeah. lives and so judge maury is one of those is there anybody else out there walking the planet or has passed away yeah. that is that basically yeah. sat you down and said, Jessica, you can either be this or you could be this. Yeah. It's your choice. What do you think? Yeah. There are a couple. Um, so I was really lucky during law school to be the first law um, Albert Schweitzer fellow in the state of in the state of North Carolina. My husband had been an Albert Schweitzer fellow for medicine and helped run some vaccination clinics in rural North Carolina. But I was the first one for law because I was running, I was helping run a program called Teen Court. And uh, the Albert Schweitzer quote, whenever anyone asks me what quote means the most to me, I always say um, Albert Schweitzer's, uh, what he said was, I decided to make my life my argument. And that's always been a really important quote for me because I can I can say all I want, but if I'm not making my life my argument, I'm not living that reality. Um, Judge Maury, there was a moment also with her when I was moving around. Generally, we stayed in juvenile court, but she had other duties. And so we headed up to uh, district court and there was a, a line of prisoners in their jumpsuits and their orange jumpsuits all shackled together. And one of them, I didn't understand what was happening because I hadn't seen this before, but she understood that one of them was going through heroin withdrawal and was essentially just really sick in court. And you know, this is something that happens a lot, but she went and spoke to the uh, one of the attorneys or bail. I can't remember who she spoke to, but she's like, look, this person is suffering. Can we get them some help? And it was that moment where I realized, oh, she's really busy, but she's really looking carefully at the people around her and caring about them. Um, and it would be really easy in her job to get calloused. And she just didn't. And then and the third one is um, my mentor in law school who became the dean of University of North Carolina School of Law, um, uh, Dean Jack Boger. He's now retired. But he actually argued, uh, he was my constitutional law professor and my education law professor. And he had argued in front of the Supreme Court on a case about the fact that the death penalty, he's anti-death penalty, and he argued a case in the Supreme Court about the fact that the death penalty was um, applied unfairly to uh, disproportionately to people of color they looked at some statistics about you know who ends up getting the death penalty um if they kill a white person if they kill a black person if it's a black person killing another black person and they realized that it was being uh, unfairly applied and therefore was in violation of cruel and unusual punishment and so he got to he argued in front of the supreme court and he came to my class when i was teaching 12 and 13 year olds about what the eighth amendment is all about and he talked about what it was like 
to argue in the Supreme Court. And he put the kids right there and talked about, you know, how close the justices are to you. It's not in this big space that you would think. So he really was inspiring to me and he was inspiring to my students. And so, yeah, I guess Albert Schweitzer, you know, definitely Marsha Mori and uh, Jack Boger are three people that I really have been huge inspirations to me. And there are teachers that, you know, two teachers in particular of mine from high school that helped me see that I could be a writer. Um, but those three people really have been instrumental, I think, in my you know, trajectory. And, and that, those are some pretty cool ones. I, um, you know, I think back, you know, um, when I was a little kid and um, I think, you know, your parents, when they, when they sit down and they, they talk to you. So my dad uh, uh, just passed away, but, but my mom was a um, stay-at-home mom. And mm -hmm. the one thing that, that I really hits home with my mom is she taught me how to think big. You know, think yeah. way bigger than your little provincial self mm -hmm. and think that you could do things. And that, that, that I think if that is buried, you know, if that is, is ingrained in a kid over and over and over again, then you have that steadiness of a, you know that parenting that is constantly there constantly relied upon then you don't have to worry about a lot of the things that a lot of kids that don't have that type of thing which that's the that's the brutal part i see in society and it doesn't matter whether it's city suburb or whatever is i was so blessed to have two like really ordinary people that were my biggest cheerleaders and just constantly were there. And so I see that in some of your work, you talk about that the schools have had to, to undertake the role mm -hmm. of being a parent sometimes, which they're not equipped to do that, um, but they have to do the best they can. My daughter's a, um, a high school English teacher and she was a grade school teacher for three years and now she's a high school teacher. And she taught um, grade school kids while she was going through her training um, in South Bend and and she taught told me all of these stories about some of these kids that that the basics just were not there when they showed up to school and that's you know understanding that each kid is an individual each specific mm -hmm. person is so special and, and important when you talk about that judge figuring that out I think that's so important that when we when we run when we run into people you know, uh, we don't do it in in my so in, in my view, we don't run into people not on purpose. I think it's everything that's on purpose. We run into people, and whether you're going to be a plus for them or a minus mm -hmm. to them, and that's important. I think that we teach our kids, don't you? Yeah, it, it's interesting when when I get interviewed about gift of failure stuff. Often, I they people ask me, um, you know, what my parents were like because they figure you know will give some insight. And the thing I always say is that the, the thing that was special about my parents is that they trusted me. They trusted me to make good decisions. Um, the expectation was is that I would make good decisions. And so I did. And I think, you know, I, I remember my watching my peers and, you know, especially now, uh, watching the the parents of my own children. Um, I've never read my children's emails. I've never read my children's texts. I've never gone on the portal to look at their grades. Um, I've I I don't monitor my children's location on their phones. That's just not. 
I, I try to explain to parents that, you know, when we were young, if a kid called us at home on the telephone, it would be the equivalent of picking up the line in the guest room and listening yeah. in because that's how, you know, texting and emailing that's, well, mostly texting is how kids, you know, really communicate. And so to intrude on that privacy means that you are taking away from their autonomy, you're taking away from their relationships, and there's all kinds of things that can happen for that. And, you know, I can only think that if my parents were raising me now, um, I would hope, I try to act in a way that they, I believe they would have, which was to trust me, to let me have that space for my own communication and to instead have lots of comfort, uh, lots of conversations about, um, you know, their friends and their grades and what's going on at school and stuff like that, instead of going and behind their back to look at those things. And, you know, I talk to kids across the, I get to speak, <laughs> I have the most fun job ever. I get to travel around the country, at least until recently, go to schools talk to the teachers in the afternoon, talk to the kids during the day, talk to the parents in the evening, and the kids tell me the most amazing things. I talked to a kid recently who was 17, who said the reason he knows that his parents track him on his phone all the time is that they criticize the routes that he takes driving when he gets home. So he knows that they've been watching where he goes. Um, I, had a, I had a kid who um, was at a very religious school who emailed me afterwards because she was gay and she was scared to death. And she knows that the rules at this school are as if you're gay, you're not, you can't come anymore. And um, after, and her mother was reading her emails. And so she forbade me to have any communication with her daughter. Um, at, and it was just, there's all of this undermining of trust that seems to happen. And I don't think people can go out in the world and feel like they have efficacy and feel like they have competence if there isn't this position of um, trust from the beginning. So for me, yes, there's this think big, dream big, you know, yeah. have all these ideas about what you could do. But from the very beginning, it's, it starts with, um, I bet you you can figure that out on your own or call if you need help, but I, I bet you you can figure this problem out on your own. And that basis really for me uh, led me to be a problem solver. It also helped that my dad was a designer and was a big sort of problem solver with mechanical things. And my mom was this person who just sort of was could just kind of figure anything out. And so watching them both sort of go from the position of, huh, I bet you I can probably figure that out on my own. And we didn't have Google, they didn't have Google and they just sort of went out into the world um, and explored and adventured and figured out problems as they came. And those were the role models I had. And I think it's incredibly important for my kids to see me not call someone the minute the washing machine breaks, but try to figure it out myself first. Um, sure. That's the sort yeah. of parent I, I hope to be. And, and I, hope that, I hope that they grow up and, and say, you know, my parents, I think, trusted me to, to be a competent and honest and capable person on my own. I hope that's what they say about me someday. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, that you know, um, the kids, you know, um, I, well, I, let's just put it, out there so i don't believe that my upbringing back in the 60s and 70s is anything close to what's happening now because of the social media the social media if they would have had social media when i was a kid mm -hmm. i think it would it could have completely changed <laughs> the trajectory of where i was at because yeah so my so my mother and father were very tired by the time that that I was given the key. <laughs> where were you? Where were you in the sequence? I was number nine. 
Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm number nine. And so my parents yeah. gave me the keys to the car, the, the family yeah, yeah, car, yeah. when I turned 16 and said, you have fun yeah. or whatever. And no, no curfews. No, no, I mean, listen, I made a lot. I mean, I read this. I was laughing at this gift. of I failed a lot. I mean, yeah. a ton. I made a lot of really poor choices. But with social media now, yeah. in some ways I can kind of see and I feel the increase, mm -hmm. increased sensitivity of our kids because everything is on film. Yeah, yeah. And can you imagine? I mean, yeah. listen, Jessica, no, you and I, and, uh, think, think about when we, we were in a high school and college yeah. and everything that we did, all the mistakes we made are on film forever. Yep. No, so, and there's, believe me, I spend a lot of time talking about that um, when I'm out visiting schools too, and I'm looking for my favorite book on that topic which is around here somewhere but it's a book by a, a woman named devora d-o-v-d-e-v-o-r-a-h heitner h-e-i-t-n-e-r um screenwise um that book is absolutely fantastic um there's also screenwise i'll look at that one screenwise is fantastic the other one i really like a lot is this one um raising a screen smart kid embrace the good the bad and Avoid the Bad in the Digital Age by Juliana Minor. Um, there are a bunch of, there are a couple of good books. There's one that I also really like that takes the perspective of being really optimistic about technology. And that one is called The New Childhood by Jordan Shapiro. Um, he writes for, he wrote for Forbes for a long time and he's actually a professor at Temple. There's, there are ways to have balance. There's a woman named Anna Homayun who runs this uh, Green Ivy Education Consulting Service. And one of the big things she does is teaches, teaches kids very specifically about how to handle their on-screen lives, especially as it relates to school. So I think- no, That's a big one. That's that, I mean, yeah. tell you, so, th so this is the cottage industry, if, if you're looking for commercial, is figuring out a way that you can erase all of these horrible things that kids like I I did with mm -hmm. from the internet. I mean, it's, I mean, and I don't know where, where that comes from because you know I when I talk to folks, you know, my kids, I said, listen, that's on that's online forever. There's yeah. businesses that keep stuff online forever, and it's yeah. like, uh, so I mean, talk about pressure that you're that yeah. you're addressing with 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 the kids and the parents and the teachers, because you know it's almost like. It's a scarlet letter that lasts forever. Yeah. And, and, I, and think, I, I think my kids grew up, so I've been writing publicly since my kids were in, my oldest was in middle school. And so he, we talk a lot about what I do and don't post about um, privacy issues. Um, you know, I have, I've had, I've made some big, pretty big mistakes in the public eye. And that's been challenging. I mean, you know, I've had the the angry mob with the pitchforks come at me on social media for things that I've said. And so my kids, we talk all of that stuff through and, you know, what optics, you know, look like for kids these days. And it's it's really, really challenging. And it's something that I just, again, I think giving them a baseline understanding of how all of this works right now at least i think they're in, to some degree we can't really fully understand how this is going to be 10 years from now but at least how it works right now and then helping them understand that um they have a responsibility to create that image of themselves that is going to be out there for forever
You will never be out of a job, Jessica Leahy. And I, I really, you know, this has been a, a really fun talk. And I, um, I'm hopeful that people will listen to what you have to say and, and read your blogs and, and pick out what's, what's helpful for them and what's not, just ignore it. Um, but I, to, me, to, to, to me, cause to me, listen, I, I, I want people to believe, you know, a lot of what I say or write, mm -hmm. I mean, I write a lot too, but I know if, if they just pick the positive stuff and mm -hmm. we, we do that, we can get along and, and, and do these mm -hmm. things. So to me, it looks like you're doing just a great um, uh, amount of work to help out kids and parents and teachers. And especially when you're helping with the, the folks that are already in the you know juvenile system and, navigate their way out of that i i just i mean it, but if there's a way we can figure out that they're never in that system that's the that's the mm -hmm. kind of thing that that maybe we can just one person at a time figure that one out and um if you have any more ideas just write <laughs> a note and, well and the nice i want to help out the nice thing is that um, with the new book with the addiction inoculation uh it turns out that the things that help prevent substance abuse in kids help prevent a lot of other things in kids. Um, you know, we're talking about early intervention for academic failure and for early, you know, child aggression towards other kids and for a lot of other things that cause problems down the line, you know, health-wise and cause problems, you know, from the perspective of like social emotional learning. These are also the things that help prevent substance abuse. And substance abuse really has to do more with, um, either the self-medicating of issues that they're feeling that aren't being dealt with um, and problems that we just can predict earlier on. Our research now on what does prevent substance abuse and kids has gotten much better over the years. So the nice thing is, you know, if we do some of the things that um, help kids be healthy and, and happy and do well in school and stay engaged in school, those will go a long way to preventing problems later on in life. So. Oh, great. Fascinating. I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm eternally optimistic. I'm bullish. I, so I am absolutely bullish. So I, like I said, I'm, I'm one of 10 kids and um, I came from a you know, pretty low income area and then have basically lived, you know, a very blessed life and it's time to pass it on and to hopefully my kids will do that too. And but, you know, just it starts locally, obviously, and the things we can mm -hmm. do in our own little neighborhood, in our own family, then our neighborhood and work our way out. And you're doing a great job getting it out thank to the you. masses. I really appreciate it. But thank you thank so much you. for your time. I really, uh, I'm going to read the books and I will give you my feedback. And Yeah, please do. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to know what you think. And um, honestly, I think that the, one of the most important books that we can all read right now um, is called Mindset by Carol I've Dweck. read it. Excellent. Right. And in terms of learning, it's a make it stick is a, another really great one. But, you know, right now, honestly, my there's my reading right now is sort of centered on on uh, understanding, you know, my role as, you know, a person who has a platform and can use my platform and privilege to be of help to other people that are suffering right now. So actually my current uh, reading is a, a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I'm, I'm just moving forward from that position and hope that um, you know we can help all kids, not just the kids that are sort of easiest for us to help right now. Yeah, you know, my one of my major role models, and I, I always look at this, is uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Mm -hmm. And when I, when, I, when I think of her, I have a picture of her on my wall for, uh, uh, 
young woman from Albania to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to make her way to, to India and then to Calcutta and mm -hmm. help out people that weren't like her, weren't her faith, weren't anything. And she just figured out a way, one person at a time to help out. And you know, the number one thing that I always liked about her was her humility. What's that? Her yeah. humility. She led yeah. with your humility. And I think with all of us in, in very powerful positions, like you and I are in the top, you know, 1% of economic. So we, mm -hmm. you know, listen, we're there. It's up to us. I mean, if you think of, of Mother Teresa, she came from like very poor country, Albania, and, and went to the poorest of the poor in Calcutta to, for her to make that difference this little four foot nine woman and to begin mm -hmm. on the international stage, think of what folks that where we're at, you know, what we can do with all the economic engine that we have behind us. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and it, to if me, we do what, sorry. And if we do what Dr. Albert Schweitzer said and make our lives our yes. argument, I think that will go a very long way. I agree with you. So we got some good role models. We had some work to do. So now I'm getting psyched up, Jessica. You got me psyched up today. I'm going to try and do more, but I'm trying to keep up with you. So, hey, thank you so much okay. for, for, for appearing on this. It'll, it will, we'll get this out as soon as we can. And I just okay. really appreciated the time talking to you. If you go, you're so welcome. And if you go to jessicalahey.com under speaking, there's a box, that, a little button that says download speaking bibliography. And it's essentially my favorite books on a range of topics, include from education, parenting, all that sort of stuff. Um, and all the books I've talked about are on that, on that list. All right. So go, go to jessicalahey.com folks and, and then figure <laughs> out what, what's, what's good. And then, and it's awesome. So I, I, I really enjoyed all the on-screen stuff that you had too. That stuff is, to me, the whole uh, whole deal here with all this social media and how to deal with it. So yep. you will never yep. ever be out of work, Jessica. You are going to be the busiest <laughs> of busy the next. So so good luck to you and safe travels. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.